We just stepped on their face with a hobnailed boot and broke their nose. One, two, three. Bullshit. Welcome to the Title Run Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, back to talk to you this month about the NFL Combine. And to answer the question, is the pre-draft process broken? If you're new to the show, be sure to like and subscribe on your podcasting platform. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can email us, titlerunsports at gmail.com. So let me give you the genesis of this conversation and what is driving this podcast. When the NFL Combine started a few weeks ago, I remember getting into it with a few guys on Facebook about whether the Combine still served a practical purpose, whether that's stupid. And I really wanted to sit down and talk about why I do think the Combine actually does have some value, even though I think that the part of the process that is broken is how people use the Combine data to evaluate. But when I look at the NFL Combine, and we have one of my coaching colleagues that actually was invited as an alternate a few years back out of Tusculum University as an offensive lineman. He said he got to go get measured, uh, get all the gear, and then sit in his hotel room waiting to see if somebody got sick, no-showed, or whatever, so he could go over and actually do the drills. He didn't get selected, was drafted by the CFL, and decided instead to become a teacher and football coach because he made more money doing that than being in the CFL, and he would have had to become a Canadian citizen. So, anyways, a little detour. But the purpose of the combine is multiple but i essentially broke it down to three things first is to see and interact with players face to face and if you've ever seen like a really elite player play in person you know that it is not the same as watching them on tv two examples i can give you i watched michael vick play in person back at the georgia dome and he is the fastest human being that i've ever seen in person Watching him run in person, especially up at the perch in the nosebleeds where I was, you could see angles where people should be to tackle him, and he's blowing through their angles. His speed was like nothing I'd ever seen, and you had to see it in person to truly appreciate it. Even as fast as he looks on TV, it doesn't do him justice. The other one is Matthew Stafford. Stafford obviously has a legendarily strong arm, but... But I'll never forget watching Stafford as a freshman scrambling to his left at Georgia's 40-yard line, turning his shoulders, flicking his wrists, and throwing a rainbow that landed right next to the pylon in the end zone, 60 yards away. Of course, being that it was Stafford, it was like 10 yards past the intended receiver. And me just looking, okay, this guy's scrambling left, throwing off his back foot, flicking his wrist, and just threw the ball 60 yards effortlessly. That's the strongest arm I've ever seen in person. And those kind of things are things that you just don't get without seeing a guy in person. How big is Darnell Washington actually? If you haven't seen him in person like I have, you don't really appreciate it. And you get the point. There's just some things about seeing and interacting with people face-to-face that you can't get otherwise. And that also includes learning who the people are. And finding out more about these players' personality and how they're wired. Things that you can't get any other way other than seeing them face-to-face. So that's the first one. second purpose I wrote down was to get accurate measurements. And this one's obvious because most college programs lie about the heights and weights of their players. Georgia famously gives incredibly accurate heights and weights that are almost always exactly the same as they are at the Combine. 
I had people telling me, oh, Stetson Bennett's like five foot nine, to which I've said for two years on this podcast, no, I've said next to Stetson Bennett, he's taller than me and I'm five ten and a half. I will swear in the Bible he will measure five eleven at the combine and he measured five eleven at the combine. Alabama is a school that traditionally is also very um, honest with their heights and weights, and they lied about Bryce Young's height, having him at six foot when he's actually measured at five ten. And there's other ones. Kyler Murray was one that people thought might come in as low as five foot nine. He measured at five ten. And another example recently was Devontae Smith, who people were like, "Is this guy going to weigh in like 155 pounds?" And he weighed in at 170. But these are just a couple of examples of needing just to get accurate measurements, so you know how big these players really are. And another reason this matters is because drafting NFL players is essentially a risk assessment proposition. And if I'm trying to draft a player that has the least amount of risk, I look at quarterbacks and I say, you know what? There's a whole lot more quarterbacks that are 6'2 and taller in the Hall of Fame than there are quarterbacks that are six foot and under in the Hall of Fame. And so you simply assess the risk of drafting a quarterback that's shorter and realize that it's higher. Not a whole lot of six foot three offensive tackles in the Hall of Fame. So if you see a guy that's shorter at that position, you say, you know what? That size raises the risk of him performing poorly or underperforming in the NFL. And that's one of the things that people consider. And then I put the third one, which is to assess athleticism. Because athleticism is assessed in ways of the combine that rarely resemble anything remotely related to football when you look at the drills they're doing. And somebody said this in one of the threads I was on on Facebook, but it's worth pointing out again. One of the reasons that 300-plus players are invited to the NFL combine are that they've already been identified as being good at football. (laughs) That's the reason they got invited. And so the combine exists to help decision makers assess and differentiate players in areas besides blocking, tackling, throwing, and catching because they have the film for that. So it's not that they don't care about those things, and some of those things can be assessed. You can see a lot about how a receiver runs his route and catches the ball in his underwear when he's out there running around in a speedo. Yeah, you can tell a lot. You can tell a lot about a quarterback's arm strength, footwork, and release by watching him throw in air. But you can't tell us how that receiver beats press if he knows how to side adjust his route based on the coverage and or whether or not that quarterback can make that same throw while he's on the run. Those are things you can't tell, and that's what you look at the film for. And this leads to some of the common criticisms, which is that the, the drills, at least a lot of them, aren't directly football-related, especially when you have the positions on the line of scrimmage and positions like linebacker where the physicality is essential to the assessment, where it's not necessarily the same at quarterback or wide receiver, but the drills don't show you that. And, you know, I saw somebody write the other day, well, I've never seen a broad jump in football, and I've never seen a center sprint 40 yards. Those things are true, but while a broad jump doesn't relate directly to football, broad jump is to measure hip explosion, which is very football-related. And, yeah, you've never seen a center sprint 40 yards, but one of the reasons they do the 40-yard dash is to get the splits. And so they don't look at the 40 for those big linemen. They're looking at the 10-yard split. How quickly does this guy get off the ball? Because you know what you will see a center do? You will see a center get out in space on a screen and cover ground to block a safety. And a guy that's got a really good 10-yard split is going to be good at doing center stuff. 
Or maybe a tackle that's got a great 10-yard split is going to be hell pulling the kick out on counter tray when he's aiming at an outside linebacker or a defensive end. And those are the kind of things that do translate, even though the 40-yard sprint doesn't necessarily. But there's a certain baseline level of athleticism that you need for the position. There is no such thing as a 4-7 cornerback in the NFL. You know why? A cornerback that runs a 4-7 is not a good enough athlete to play in the NFL. And there's a reason that you don't see a whole lot of five foot ten quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame. It simply makes it harder to play the position. And every time you bring that up, someone's going to say, well, the 40s, it's so overrated. Look at guys like Anquan Bolden, who we'll talk about later. Guys like Cooper Cup ran a 4-6 at the Combine. Well, he then ran a 4-5 at his pro day. But you don't have to have a blazing 40 to be a great football player in the NFL. And that's true. But at the same time, if you're looking at some of the top receivers in the NFL, Justin Jefferson, who led the NFL in catch this past year, runs a 4-4. Tyreek Hill didn't get to go to the combine. We know he runs at least a 4-2. He is probably, if not the fastest player to ever play in the NFL, one of the top three or four. Devontae Adams ran a 4-4. A.J. Brown ran a 4-4. Stephon Diggs, (laughs) 4-4. I mean, CeeDee Lamb, 4-5-0. And I can go on and on and on. The point being, yeah, you don't have to run a 4-2 to be a great receiver. In fact, without Tyreek Hill's official 40 time, there's not a single 4-2 receiver in the last 30 years to make a Pro Bowl. That's not the ticket. But at the same time, Anquan Bolden kind of stands alone as the only guy running a 4-7 in dominating the league. And so there's a certain baseline level of athleticism that's required. And what you're going to see with a prospect like Jackson Smith and Jigba in this draft is that if they don't have the elite top line speed, they have to make up for it with being elite in some other area like agility. And Jackson Smith and Jigba posted elite agility drill times with like a, a stupid, I think it was like a 6-7 three-cone drill, which was just insanely quick. And so those drills measure quickness and acceleration over a small distance as opposed to just long speed. But all that to say... There are some drills that measure the fundamental athleticism that you'd have to have guys do. And yeah, if I'm a quarterback, I'm probably not running the 40-yard dash unless I'm going to go run a 4-6 or better. Otherwise, no point. I would probably never do the broad jump or the high jump if I'm a quarterback unless I know I'm just going to kill them and excel at them. And this leads to the second criticism that you commonly hear, which is that the combine creates a system where there's too much emphasis on measurables to the point that it starts to belittle actual film. And that's a criticism that I think is valid. So I think the combine has a purpose, but I do question whether it's actually used effectively in player personnel evaluations. So I got a little data to back this up. And this isn't this isn't like scientific, but this is just some stuff I looked up. So going back to the 2021 COVID year where there was no combine, that draft yielded first round picks that became pro bowlers that draft yielded nine first-round picks that became Pro Bowlers in 2021 and 2022. That does not include other really good players like Devontae Smith, Travis Etienne, Jalen Waddle, Eric Stokes, and Gregory Rousseau. They were plus starters. And in the second round, you had four second-round players that became Pro Bowlers. So essentially 13 Pro Bowlers taken from the first two rounds. And I highlight those two rounds because obviously – they have the biggest investment, especially contractually with the first rounders getting that fifth year. 
so much emphasis in putting on the scouting who you take in those rounds specifically. And the expectation is for your first and second round players to be immediate contributors. You don't draft and stash first round picks typically, the one exception being at quarterback. And that's not really even been the case for the last 10 to 15 years. That's really changed. In 2020, you had six Pro Bowlers selected in round one, and then some other good players in the first round that were starters, like Tua Tagovailoa, Brandon Ayu, Edge Terrell, and Jordan Brooks. Second round yielded four Pro Bowlers. And again, they had, for the most part, the full evaluation process because COVID started in March right after the combine had come through. 2019, 11 first-round picks, and then other players taking the first round like Noah Fant, Hollywood Brown, Caleb McGarry, that were good starters, and then six second-round picks made the Pro Bowl. So 17 first- or second-round picks in that draft made the Pro Bowl. So that's a good draft. In 2018, 14 first-round picks made the Pro Bowl, plus other quality starters like Calvin Ridley and DJ Moore, and six made it in the second round. 2017, 13 first-round picks made the Pro Bowl, plus Leonard Fournette and Corey Davis, who are really good starters, and then five second-round picks. So, four second-round picks. And on average, and this is a five-year average, you average 10.6 players selected in the first round making the Pro Bowl and five players selected in the second round making the Pro Bowl. In 2021, without the combine, you ended up with nine first-round picks becoming Pro Bowlers and four second-round picks, essentially just barely below the averages. And this, again, isn't scientific data, but what it goes to show me is that in 2021, where they didn't have the combine and they had to rely more on film and a little bit of data from pro days, that it didn't really change the quality of the evaluations for first and second round picks. And that's not scientific. I can't prove that it doesn't have any effect, but it just doesn't appear to be a huge difference. So what does this mean for the Falcons? Well, last year it meant the Falcons took the most athletic linebacker in the draft, a guy with a relative athleticism score of 9.98, over an undersized linebacker that had the highest accolades and pedigree of anybody in the draft with Nicobe Dean. And I was among those that were outraged. Um, A year later, though, Troy Anderson started five games for the Falcons and recorded 40 tackles, and Nicobe Dean did not start a game for the Eagles and recorded 13 tackles. And this isn't to say that Troy Anderson wasn't a good player in college. I think he had 140 tackles his last year out of, in college. But he was a player that had good production and good measurables, and he looks like he's going to be a good NFL player, even though he wasn't great as a rookie. But this is the point I want to make here. The combine should never change your opinion on how good someone is at football. But it's a simple fact that being bigger, stronger, and faster increases your chances of success in the NFL. So in the case of the Falcons, Troy Anderson, they see him and Kobe Dean and say, hey, here are two very highly productive college players. One has absolutely elite measurables, measures as the fifth most athletic linebacker that's been tested in the last 30 years. Another one is short, light, and possibly injured. And they made the decision, we're going to go with the guy that was productive and has the higher physical ceiling, even though N'Kobe Dean is probably, today, the day of the draft, a slightly better football player. We can disagree with that, but but that's the way they approach things. That's why they're taking a Troy Anderson over some of the other prospects they could have taken. 
And sometimes the evaluations on these guys are easy. When a player has both good film and good measurables, you end up with prospects like Calvin Johnson, who's probably the best wide receiver prospect of my lifetime. He was a guy that was a zero-risk pick that you projected to be, if not the best, one of the best receivers in the NFL within his first few years, and he was, and he was that for his entire career. It was an easy projection. Andrew Luck's another one. Chase Young, Miles Garrett. You looked at Chase Young and Miles Garrett, and you said those guys will be like all pro players within two years, and they were. Jamar Chase, Minka Fitzpatrick was one of the best DB prospects for over like a five-year period. Kyle Pitts, the best tight end prospect probably in NFL history. Patrick Sertan last year, who I said is one of the safest cornerback prospects that I'd seen. Nick Bosa, Saquon Barkley, Sauce Gardner. These are players whose tools and tape make them easy evaluations. You look at them, you say, there is very little doubt this guy is going to be an immediately good NFL player. Then you have players with subpar measurables that have good skill. Great examples are Lando Brown, who just got broke off with another big contract. He had one of the worst combines in NFL history. Guy was an All-American coming out of Oklahoma. Was fat, was slow, and you know what they realized? You know what? When we put him on the field, he still mauls people. <laughs> um, and he, he did not allow a sack last year. He was one of the best tackles in football. Anquan Bolden famously ran a 4-7 at the combine, dropped in the second round coming out of Florida State, had a borderline Hall of Fame career. Kyler Murray, he was short. We might be th- we thought he might be under 5'10". Imagine at 5'10". Devontae Smith, already talked about him. These players are difficult evaluations because you have to determine whether their skill can overcome potential deficits in athleticism. Devontae Smith is one of the smallest players in the NFL from a weight standpoint. He's like in the one percentile. And you have to under- you have to think about, well, can that guy hold up in this league? Are his skills enough to overcome the physical deficits he has? To this point, it looks like they are. The same thing with Kyler Murray. His height has been something he's been able to overcome. Mac Jones' lack of athleticism looks like it's something he's been able to overcome. And then you have the absolute riskiest picks. And these are players with clear question marks or gaps in their skill set or in their game, but they have exceptional tools, and they're the most volatile to pick. When you hit on one of those, you get Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson, Leighton Vander Esch, Tariq Wool, and DK Metcalf. Pick your great athlete who had some question marks about their skill set coming out of college, then got in the NFL, got put in the right system, got coached and balled out. But when you miss, you get Jalen Rager, O.J. Howard, Solomon Thomas, John Ross, Prashad Perriman, Darius Hayward Bay, Jamal Anderson, and every wide receiver drafted by the New England Patriots. (laughs) Guys that have the tools, but the tools never end up matching the production you expect from their draft slot. And before, as a Falcons fan, you're throwing guys like Tack McKinley and Vic Beasley. I'll push back and say those guys were actually very good college players. And both of them came out of college double digit sacks. McKinley had 10 his last year at UCLA. Vic Beasley had back-to-back years where I think he totaled 25 sacks and was an All-American. And both tested phenomenal with the combine. So, there was every reason to believe that those guys were going to be sought-in NFL players, and it's really even more frustrating that they didn't become good NFL players. So I'll push back a little bit on the Falcons fans that want to throw them in. So where all this is going this year is that now there's scuttle about the Falcons taking possibly a quarterback at number eight, 
if uh, Will Levis or Anthony Richardson is there. And this is picking up steam as they've kind of worked to fill gaps in their roster at defense tackle, cornerback, safety, offense tackle, where those are no longer positions that desperate need. And so you are kind of left with more options to take the best player available with the eighth pick. And to take a quarterback there is likely to take the third or possibly fourth best quarterback left on the board as there's going to be probably three quarterbacks that go in the top seven. And I think this would be extremely foolish in my opinion because um, the combine beer goggles may be worse at quarterback than any other position. You can maybe argue wide receiver because people fall in love with 40-yard dashes um, and they get horny for fast receivers. But, like, man, people will pull the trigger on some quarterbacks on stuff that looks good when they're on the field in their pajamas with no one covering their, their receivers or no pressure on them. Hello, Zach Wilson. And I call this trend the Josh Allen effect. And I call it that because Josh Allen, as I've talked about before, was a greatly flawed prospect coming out of Wyoming, a few years ago, I think it was the 2017 or 2018, the Baker Mayfield draft. And I actually had Baker Mayfield rated as the best quarterback in that class, which I kind of was right on. He was taking number one. And my thing on Allen, as I said, his accuracy is really concerning. He's a 53% completion percentage against worst comp- against very low-level competition. He didn't have high-level production, never even threw for 20 touchdown passes in a season. He's a great athlete. His arm is insane. But – I said I think that his range of outcomes was anywhere from, like, Dante Culpepper <laughs> to, like, uh, Tavares Jackson. And I said he's just a boomer bust prospect. If he ever figures out how to be accurate, it'll be great. But accuracy is not one of those things that quarterbacks typically just figure out in the NFL. He did. And now here's the problem. Because Josh Allen, this great athlete, figured out how to throw the football accurately and has become elite People think they can do that with the next great prospect with physical tools. Despite much, much, much data to the contrary. Um, And so right now that guy's Anthony Richardson. And I asked the question, why is this guy moving up draft boards? If you think he's awesome, that's fine. But I saw people that had moved him up from, you know, the 25th prospect to the 6th prospect. Reliable people after his combine performance to which I said, what did you learn about Anthony Richardson that you didn't already know from the combine? He's big, strong, fast, and has a huge arm. Did you not already know that from watching him on film? Because I knew all those things. Does anything he did at the combine show you that he can be a competent quarterback in year one? Because I saw a guy that was extremely inaccurate and was even inaccurate at the combine, and I just don't see a starting quarterback right away. I think he's at least a year away from being on the field and at least two years away from being a competent quarterback. I think if you put them out, put him out there right now, you're going to get Justin Fields 2.0, hoping he turns into Josh Allen 2.0. And I think he is much less pulse than Justin Fields was coming out of college. I thought Justin Fields was a, at least a good thrower of the football. Um, I did think that he had some processing issues, and I think you're seeing that at the pro level, but he was a much better thrower of the football than Anthony Richardson. And – an equally good athlete. And he went. He dropped all the way to, what, 10th or 11th in that draft? And they're talking about taking Anthony Richardson, some people, at number one overall? Like, you're smoking something. I'm sorry. But this is the Josh Allen effect. And to some extent, the Lamar Jackson effect. Lamar Jackson, an elite athlete who people question some of the stuff with his footwork and accuracy, figured it out, won an MVP. He's 
high-level quarterback. And so everybody thinks they can do that with the next great physical prospect. And I just, I'm not sold. And while I would probably burn my Falcons jackets and jerseys if they took Anthony Richardson, I wouldn't feel quite the same way about Will Levis, but I still am not sold on even that as a viable option. And here's why. Anthony Richardson is simply not a good quarterback, but what does Will Levis actually do better than Desmond Ritter? Like, tell me. In college, he didn't win more. He didn't have better production as a runner or passer. Ritter topped him in both. He wasn't as accurate as Ritter. He's probably slower because people forget Ritter ran a 4-5. He was the fastest quarterback in the combine. What he does have, 20 pounds of muscle, and he's probably got a little bit stronger arm because Ritter does have a good arm, but Levis probably has a little bit stronger arm. But my question about Will Levis is this. Tell me one thing he's exceptional at. I'll wait. You know, at least Anthony Richardson has an elite running ability, but I really want somebody to tell me one thing that Will Levis is exceptional at. Desmond Ritter, you could say he had exceptional production, he had exceptional speed for quarterback, and he had a resume as a winner. Well, Levis is none of that. And you want to take him at eight? He's not like I don't see how he's a better prospect. And so here's the bottom line to put a bow on all this. I do think that the combine is important. I do think, though, that the pre-draft process goes awry. If you allow what you see with guys running around in their underwear to change what you think about how good they are as a football player. Now, how good they are as a football player is not necessarily how good they are as a prospect. As a quick example, in this year's draft, Devin Witherspoon is clearly the best cornerback in this draft. But Christian Gonzalez is also very, very good and has better physical tools. He's six foot one and weighs 200 pounds. Devin Witherspoon is six foot, weighs 180 pounds. That makes a difference when the skill set is close because you can look at Christian Gonzalez and say, man, his tools project to a higher ceiling, even though Devin Witherspoon is probably better at football today. That's a case where you look at the tools and you make a projection and and it makes sense. But when the skills are clearly widely missing like they are with a guy like Anthony Richardson. Like the difference between Anthony Richardson and Bryce Young as a quarterback is massive. I believe in tape over testing. I do. And I hope that's the approach the Falcons take with this draft. Value the tape over the testing. Take the best player available. And please, please, please do not let it be a quarterback. This has been Dave Bethay with the Todd Run Sports Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.